This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hip fractures have a major impact on our healthcare system, with an economic burden estimated to be over $20 billion per year. Due to the increasing age of our population, hip fractures will have an even greater impact. In addition to the economic burden, hip fractures are associated with an increase in mortality and often result in major changes in one's lifestyle. As a result, the detection, prevention, and treatment of osteoporosis becomes an important health strategy. Today's topic is osteoporosis, calcium, and vitamin D, and to discuss this topic, we're joined by Dr. Kurt Kennel, a Mayo Clinic endocrinologist and specialist in bone metabolism. Thanks for joining us today, Kurt. Very happy to be here. Well, let's start by talking some basic information about bone. And I know bone density tends to decrease as we get older, but when does this decline actually start? So we start to see it with the bone density test you're referring to in the 50s, and more predominantly in women as they go through the menopause in the early 50s. But there's actually some changes occurring to bone strength and bone structures even in midlife that we don't see with the bone density test. That, of course, we'd like to prevent in terms of preventing fractures and later in life. So we typically start to screen people at age 50 or so, and we can begin to see that decline, especially after menopause. But there are actually changes happening in midlife already that we'd like to prevent as well. Are these changes purely due to hormonal things, such as androgens in males, estrogens in females? Yep, clearly hormones dominate bone metabolism, and so those major events like menopause are a huge factor in these changes. But also lifestyle, things that we're doing differently as adults, for example, our activity patterns, our nutrition patterns, we tend to become more sedentary Mm -hmm. as adults, for example, as opposed to children. And these are probably responsible for some of those changes in bone structure and shape that are occurring even prior to the menopause, for example. Okay. So when we're younger Mm -hmm. and we're presumably building new bone, um, can you discuss the importance of diet and that process? Yeah. So clearly important throughout childhood, but actually critically important during puberty. So for girls between 10 and 14, boys maybe 12 and 16, during that peak growth spurt, it's very clear that diet and physical activity can make a difference in the peak bone mass, the peak bone strength we achieve in our 20s to 30s. And some of those aspects of diet are the things you would have guessed, things like calcium intake and vitamin D nutrition. Turns out protein intake is also important as well. And the physical activity piece really seems to be critical. And the part of that that's most important, of course, is just not being sedentary, which is a good start, Mm -hmm. but having a variety of physical activity, not just one thing I do like walking, but also resistance type exercises, balance type things, both applicable to the older patient, but also part of that that peak bone mass that we're trying to achieve in our 20s to 30s. Okay. Uh, We know that our population drinks a lot of carbonated beverages. Uh, What role does that play in, uh, in 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 our bone formation? There was actually a period of time when it was referred to as the soda wars in the calcium debate because it was so hotly debated. And at the end of the day, what seems to matter is if a person has a combination of a high soda intake and a low calcium intake, we can see detrimental effects on bone and peak bone mass. Not that soda consumption is a good thing, but if we have soda consumption but you know with adequate calcium intake at the same time, it doesn't seem to be a major negative factor. So the key message is as long as we have adequate calcium intake, 
soda intake is not necessarily going to be a bad thing for bones. Okay. Does the phosphorus content of the carbonated drinks play a role? That was part of the concern, the phosphoric acid. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the general nutritionist would suggest that if a person's tending to use more soda, perhaps that doesn't associate with other health habits in terms of nutrition, and that might be part of the link as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the soda alone, it doesn't appear. But again, that even that phosphorus load, the phosphoric acid component, didn't seem to matter if there was adequate calcium intake. Okay, good. What are the risk factors for osteoporosis? When should we suspect this in patients? You know, it's a long list. On the one hand, on the other hand, there's some things that would, would almost always predict osteoporosis. So for example, those who have a strong family history, and you mentioned hip fracture. So those who have a hip fracture in a parent, even if it seemed like it was the kind of thing that could happen to anybody, that should be a strong tip-off toward I might have a concern regarding osteoporosis when I'm over 50. Uh, low body weight, very strong predictor of low bone mass. So body weight less than 117 pounds, we'd be very concerned about that. Um, any, you mentioned hormonal issues. So any man or woman who had hormone concerns as a younger person, uh, women who had lost their menstrual cycle for a number of years or who had early menopause, perhaps a surgery, perhaps other treatment, um, very concerning for osteoporosis after age 50. Um, perhaps the biggest one, though, is that there are many things we don't understand about who gets osteoporosis, but if I'm having low trauma fractures in midlife, I'm falling and breaking my wrist when I'm even just 40, that has been shown very clearly to predict who might have osteoporosis when they get older. So even though we might tend to minimize low trauma fractures because anybody could have done it, right? Mm -hmm. That really should concern us when it comes to could I be a person with osteoporosis when I'm over 50. Okay. What risk assessment surveys are out there to help us to suspect or detect osteoporosis? So there is a tool called FRAX, uh, the World Health Organization. Uh, it's F-R-A-X, if you Google that. It has been proposed as a tool where one can put in your height, your weight, uh, age, family history, smoking status, things of that nature, and it will give you an estimated risk of fracture. And it was proposed by uh, USPSTF that if we did that and had a risk of more than 9% that we should be seeking screening for osteoporosis, we should be seeking bone density testing to, to look to see if we do. Uh, actually, uh, Dr. Tom Thatcher here in Family Medicine at Mayo Clinic looked at that and he found it actually a very poor way of deciding should I, should I not have a bone density test. So it seems that those risk prediction tools um, don't do that well, quite frankly. That if we, if, if we go by the more traditional approach of age greater than 50, 65 for sure, but greater than 50 if I have other reasons to be concerned about osteoporosis like that family history or like that low body weight, those remain relatively good ways of saying this person should be assessed. Okay. In addition to bone mineral density, what other tests should we consider ordering? Yeah. So uh, the clinician would, would obviously want to be concerned about other pre-existing conditions that could be associated with, with uh, low bone density that might be reversible. So for example, if a person was uh, anemic mm -hmm. or a person who had other symptoms or signs of maybe celiac disease, because if we treated those conditions, we could actually see improvement in bone density. So most of the time when people present with low bone density, we're looking at things like a blood count, we're looking at things like calcium levels in the blood, uh, kidney function tests, liver function tests. I suppose you could describe these as basic tests because it, they might point toward other health conditions, not bone specific conditions, but if those things are treated, we could see improvement. Perhaps the other ones that are of concern are anybody who has a kidney stone history because there can be a connection between kidney stones and poor bone health, so we might measure calcium in the urine. And then vitamin D, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I suspect. Mm -hmm. uh, the one test I think is overlooked sometimes is um, a spine x-ray. And 
the rationale here is that if a person has maybe a lower bone density osteopenia, but we add to that evidence that they've actually had fractures, that changes the landscape entirely in terms of their prognosis. Mm -hmm. And some people might be aware of some height loss, some people might be aware of some curvature of the back, but two-thirds of fractures that occur in the spine have no pain associated with them and might only be detected by an X-ray. So I think a spine X-ray in someone who has that height loss story or that curvature that might be evolving could be a very important test because it would very much change the conversation about how concerned are we regarding this bone density. And if we're going to order a spine X-ray, do we get cervical, thoracic, and lumbar? Uh, thoracic and lumbar. Okay. Most of these fractures will occur between the fifth thoracic vertebrae and the fourth lumbar vertebrae. So those would be the key sites. Okay. Let's say a patient doesn't have risk factors for premature osteoporosis. When should they get their first bone mineral density? So women, it's fairly well agreed upon, age 65. Um, men, not so well agreed upon. Um, there's not as clear information in men that screening everyone results in improved health for men in general. So some groups would say men at age 70 could be offered a screening test. Um, in truth, if there's any other health conditions that could affect bone, I think you would have a low threshold for screening a man at age 70, so a smoking history, for example. Um, anybody, again, who had that low trauma fracture in midlife, I think would easily qualify even as a man at age 70. Mm -hmm. I noticed that the numbers don't change very fast. Mm. So how often should these things be repeated? Thank you for asking. It's one of my areas of interest in that we, we've identified this test really as best serving people as a one-time test, a test that we measure at 65, for example, women, just to get a sense of the next 10, 20 years as to should we be concerned or not. But it became a bit of a monitoring test that right. once done, it tended to be repeated to see how I'm doing, which wasn't really the purpose for it. So um, a nice study done by uh, Dr. Enzer at the University of Minnesota showed that we could have some idea as to how fast this might progress in normal circumstances. And it's as simple as this. If my score as a woman at age 65 is between minus 2 and minus 2.5, so osteopenia but osteoporosis, I could reasonably recheck within two years. But if it's greater than minus 2, so let's say minus 1, minus 1.5, it could take 5 to 10 years mm -hmm. before I see an osteoporosis score at my hip. So I don't need to be checking it every two years. I could really say, you know, I'm glad I'm doing how I'm doing at 65. Maybe I'll check again when I'm 70, 75, for example. I've spent a fair portion of my career doing geriatrics and a fair amount in nursing home care. Mm -hmm. And there were patients that seemed to end up with hip fractures. Mm -hmm. And the nursing staff was convinced that the fall didn't cause the hip fracture, that rather the hip fracture may have caused the fall. Do we know if that's the case? Uh, it is the case, but rarely. Okay. It is the case. We can see atypical fractures of the femur that are thought to be a disruption to the strength of the femur that is then, you know, aggravated by twisting or bending, something that less than a fall. But it does seem that most of these fractures that we see of the femur neck in particular are an impact, you know, on the floor. Uh, these happen quickly, as you would know mm -hmm. as well. And in that regard, that's more likely the scenario. So it is possible. Um, but we want to think that that's the ma minority of cases. Okay. Well, let's turn to some management issues now. Mm. Let's say a patient doesn't have osteoporosis but does have some osteopenia. What should, be, what should we be recommending to them for treatment? So I think we would all value those non-drug approaches to treatment. We just want to be mindful as to how much of a difference they really make. I think sometimes when we think about nutrition, we think about fitness as valuable tools, uh, we, we put them on par with medication, 
in terms of how much of a difference they'll make in breaking a bone. And we know that in the world of osteopenia, osteoporosis, things like modifying calcium intake or exercising are, are valuable, but they make a pretty small difference in the likelihood of breaking a bone or not. Mm -hmm. So the key thing I, I always bring to fact is what is the risk of fracture? We can calculate that using the bone density and some other variables. And if it's very high, we should include medication in the conversation up front, but maybe it's not that high. And we should say, well, we'd be satisfied with the smaller effect of an exercise program, a nutrition program. Um, so what could that look like? That could include a person who maybe has good reasons to get into an exercise program anyways for their cardiovascular health or their mental health. Um, a key thing from a bone point of view is we're looking for uh, multiple different types of exercise. We're looking for aerobic, resistance, balance. And I see many of my patients will tend to gravitate toward one, mm -hmm. but not the others. Maybe they don't favor resistance exercise as much, for example. So if we're looking from a bone point of view, we need all three. Nutrition, uh, maintaining body weight. Um, we oftentimes stress so much losing weight, but in the course of bone, we're looking to avoid underweight as well. So just adequate calories and protein for weight maintenance. And calcium and vitamin D, um, the main thing we're looking for there, again, are people who have a conspicuous deficit in their diet that we might want to augment. Taking extra calcium, extra vitamin D for those who actually have a very reasonable diet may not make that big a difference. Okay. We've been talking about vitamin D, calcium, and osteoporosis with Dr. Kurt Kennel, a male clinic physician in endocrinology. Kurt, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Mayo Clinic conferences welcome physicians and healthcare providers from across the country and around the world. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.